Section six of History of the United States, Part seven Progressive Democracy and the World War. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Stephanie Lee. History of the United States by Charles A. Beard and Mary Ritter Beard. Part seven Progressive Democracy and the World War. Section six president wilson and the world war the welfare the happiness the energy and the spirit of the men and women who do the daily work in our mines and factories on our railroads in our offices and ports of trade on our farms and on the sea are the underlying necessity of all prosperity thus spoke woodrow wilson during his campaign for election in this spirit as president he gave the signal for work by summoning congress in a special session on april seventh nineteen thirteen he invited the cooperation of all forward-looking men and indicated that he would assume the role of leadership as an evidence of his resolve he appeared before congress in person to read his first message reviving the old custom of washington and adams then he let it be known that he would not give his party any rest until it fulfilled its pledges to the country when democratic senators balked at tariff reductions they were sharply informed that the party had plighted its word and that no excuses or delays would be tolerated domestic legislation financial measures under this spirited leadership congress went to work passing first the underwood tariff act of nineteen thirteen which made a downward revision in the rates of duty fixing them on the average about twenty six per cent lower than the figures of nineteen o seven the protective principle was retained but an effort was made to permit a moderate element of foreign competition as a part of the revenue act congress levied a tax on incomes as authorized by the sixteenth amendment to the constitution the tax which aroused such party passions twenty years before was now accepted as a matter of course having disposed of the tariff congress took up the old and vexatious currency question and offered a new solution in the form of the federal reserve law of december nineteen thirteen this measure one of the most interesting in the history of federal finance embraced four leading features in the first place it continued the prohibition on the issuance of notes by state banks and provided for a national currency in the second place it put the new banking system under the control of a federal reserve board composed entirely of government officials to prevent the growth of a central money power it provided in the third place for the creation of twelve federal reserve banks one in each of twelve great districts into which the country is divided all local national banks were required and certain other banks permitted to become members of the new system and share in its control finally with a view to expanding the currency a step which the democrats had long urged upon the country the issuance of paper money under definite safeguards was authorized mindful of the agricultural interest ever dear to the heart of jefferson's followers the democrats supplemented the reserve law by the farm loan act of nineteen sixteen creating federal agencies to lend money on farm mortgages at moderate rates of interest within a year twenty million had been lent to farmers the heaviest borrowing being in nine western and southern states with texas in the lead antitrust legislation the tariff and currency laws were followed by three significant measures relative to trusts rejecting utterly the progressive doctrine of government regulation president wilson announced that it was the purpose of the democrats to destroy monopoly and maintain competition as the only effective instrument of business liberty 
The first step in this direction, the Clayton Antitrust Act, carried into great detail the Sherman Law of 1890, forbidding and penalizing combinations in restraint of interstate and foreign trade. In every line it revealed a determined effort to tear apart the great trusts and to put all business on a competitive basis. Its terms were reinforced in the same year by a law creating a Federal Trade Commission, empowered to inquire into the methods of corporations and lodge complaints against concerns using any unfair method of competition. In only one respect was the severity of the democratic policy relaxed. An act of 1918 provided that the Sherman Law should not apply to companies engaged in export trade, the purpose being to encourage large corporations to enter foreign commerce. The effect of this whole body of antitrust legislation, in spite of much labor on it, remained problematical. Very few combinations were dissolved as a result of it. Startling investigations were made into alleged abuses on the part of trusts, but it could hardly be said that huge business concerns had lost any of their predominance in American industry. Labor Legislation by no mere coincidence, the Clayton Antitrust Law of 1914 made many concessions to organized labor. It declared that the labor of a human being is not a commodity or an article of commerce, and it exempted unions from prosecution as combinations in restraint of trade. It likewise defined and limited the uses which the federal courts might make of injunctions in labor disputes, and guaranteed trial by jury to those guilty of disobedience. See page 581. The Clayton Law was followed the next year by the Siemens Act giving greater liberty of contract to American sailors and requiring an improvement of living conditions on shipboard. This was such a drastic law that shipowners declared themselves unable to meet foreign competition under its terms, owing to the low labor standards of other countries. Still more extraordinary than the Siemens Act was the Adamson Law of 1916, fixing a standard eight-hour workday for trainmen on railroads a measure wrung from Congress under a threat of a great strike by the four railway brotherhoods. This act, viewed by union leaders as a triumph, called forth a bitter denunciation of trade union domination, but it was easier to criticize than to find another solution of the problem. Three other laws enacted during President Wilson's administration were popular in the labor world. One of them provided compensation for federal employees injured in the discharge of their duties. Another prohibited the labor of children under a certain age in the industries of the nation. A third prescribed for coal miners in Alaska an eight-hour day and modern safeguards for life and health. There were positive proofs that organized labor had obtained a large share of power in the councils of the country. Federal and State Relations If the interference of the government with business and labor represented a departure from the old idea of the less government the better, what can be said of a large body of laws affecting the rights of states? The prohibition of child labor everywhere was one indication of the new tendency. Mr. Wilson had once declared such legislation unconstitutional. The Supreme Court declared it unconstitutional, but Congress, undaunted, carried it into effect under the guise of a tax on goods made by children below the age limit. There were other indications of the drift. Large sums of money were appropriated by Congress in 1916 to assist the states in building and maintaining highways. The same year, the Farm Loan Act projected the federal government into the sphere of local money lending. In 1917, millions of dollars were granted to states in aid of vocational education, incidentally imposing uniform standards throughout the country. Evidently, the government was no longer limited to the duties of the policeman. 
the prohibition amendment a still more significant form of intervention in state affairs was the passage in december nineteen seventeen of an amendment to the federal constitution establishing national prohibition of the manufacture and sale of intoxicating liquors and beverages this was the climax of a historical movement extending over half a century in eighteen seventy two a national prohibition party launched three years before nominated its first presidential candidate and inaugurated a campaign of agitation though its vote was never large the cause for which it stood found increasing favor among the people state after state by popular referendum abolished the liquor traffic within its borders by nineteen seventeen at least thirty-two of the forty-eight were dry when the federal amendment was submitted for approval the ratification was surprisingly swift and a little more than a year namely on january sixteenth nineteen nineteen it was proclaimed twelve months later the amendment went into effect colonial and foreign policies the philippines and puerto rico independence for the philippines and larger self-government for puerto rico had been among the policies of the democratic party since the campaign of nineteen hundred president wilson in his annual messages urged upon congress more autonomy for the philippines and a definite promise of final independence the result was the jones organic act for the philippines passed in nineteen sixteen this measure provided that the upper as well as the lower house of the philippine legislature should be elected by popular vote and declared it to be the intention of the united states to grant independence as soon as a stable government can be established this said president wilson on signing the bill is a very satisfactory advance in our policy of extending to them self-government and control of their own affairs the following year congress yielding to president wilson's insistence passed a new organic act for puerto rico making both houses of the legislature elective and conferring american citizenship upon the inhabitants of the island american power in the caribbean while extending more self-government to its dominions the united states enlarged its sphere of influence in the caribbean the supervision of finances in santo domingo inaugurated in roosevelt's administration was transformed into a protectorate under wilson in nineteen fourteen dissensions in the republic led to the landing of american marines to supervise the elections two years later an officer in the american navy with authority from washington placed the entire republic in a state of military occupation he proceeded to suspend the government and laws of the country exile the president suppress the congress and substitute american military authority in nineteen nineteen a consulting board of four prominent dominicans was appointed to aid the american military governor but it resigned the next year after making a plea for the restoration of independence to the republic for all practical purposes it seemed the sovereignty of santo domingo had been transferred to the united states in the neighboring republic of haiti a similar state of affairs existed in the summer of nineteen fifteen a revolution broke out there one of a long series beginning in eighteen o four and our marines were landed to restore order elections were held under the supervision of american officers and a treaty was drawn up placing the management of haitian finances and the local constabulary under american authority in taking this action our secretary of state was careful to announce the united states government has no purpose of aggression and is entirely disinterested in promoting this protectorate still it must be said that there were vigorous protests on the part of natives and american citizens against the conduct of our agents in the island in nineteen twenty one president wilson was considering withdrawal 
in line with american policy in the west indian waters was the purchase in nineteen seventeen of the danish islands just off the coast of puerto rico this strategic position of the islands especially in relation to haiti and puerto rico made them an object of american concern as early as eighteen sixty seven when a treaty of purchase was negotiated only to be rejected by the senate of the united states in nineteen o two a second arrangement was made but this time it was defeated by the upper house of the danish parliament the third treaty brought an end to fifty years of bargaining and the stars and stripes were raised over st croix st thomas st john and numerous minor islands scattered about in the neighborhood it would be suicidal commented a new york newspaper for america on the threshold of a great commercial expansion into south america to suffer a heligoland or a gibraltar or an aden to be erected by rivals at the mouth of her suez on the mainland american power was strengthened by the establishment of a protectorate over nicaragua in nineteen sixteen mexican relations the extension of american enterprise southward into latin america of which the operations in the caribbean regions were merely one phase naturally carried americans into mexico to develop the natural resources of that country under the iron rule of general porfirio diaz established in eighteen seventy six and maintained with only a short break until nineteen eleven mexico had become increasingly attractive to our businessmen on the invitation of president diaz they had invested huge sums in mexican lands oil fields and mines and had laid the foundations of a new industrial order the severe regime instituted by diaz however stirred popular discontent the peons or serfs demanded the break-up of the great estates some of which had come down from the days of cortez their clamor for the restoration of the land to the people could not be silenced in nineteen eleven diaz was forced to resign and left the country mexico now slid down the path to disorder revolutions and civil commotions followed in swift succession a liberal president madero installed as a successor to diaz was deposed in nineteen thirteen and brutally murdered huerta a military adventurer hailed for a time as another strongman succeeded madero whose murder he was accused of instigating although great britain and nearly all the powers of europe accepted the new government as lawful the united states steadily withheld recognition in the meantime mexico was torn by insurrections under the leadership of carranza a friend of madero villa a bandit of generous pretensions and zapata a radical leader of the peons without the support of the united states huerta was doomed in the summer of nineteen fourteen the dictator resigned and fled from the capital leaving the field to carranza for six years the new president recognized by the united states held a precarious position which he vigorously strove to strengthen against various revolutionary movements at length in nineteen twenty he too was deposed and murdered and another military chieftain obregon installed in power these events right at our door could not fail to involve the government of the united states in the disorders many american citizens lost their lives american property was destroyed and land owned by americans was confiscated a new mexican constitution in effect nationalizing the natural resources of the country struck at the rights of foreign investors moreover the mexican border was in constant turmoil even in the last days of his administration mr taft felt compelled to issue a solemn warning to the mexican government protesting against the violation of american rights president wilson soon after his inauguration sent a commissioner to mexico to inquire into the situation although he declared a general policy of watchful waiting he twice came to blows with mexican forces 
1914 some American sailors at Tampico were arrested by a Mexican officer. The Mexican government, although it immediately released the men, refused to make the required apology for the incident. As a result, President Wilson ordered the landing of American forces at Veracruz and the occupation of the city. A clash of arms followed in which several Americans were killed. War seemed inevitable, but at this juncture the governments of Argentina, Brazil, and Chile tendered their good offices as mediators. After a few weeks of negotiation, during which Huerta was forced out of power, American forces were withdrawn from Veracruz and the incident closed. In 1916, a second break in amicable relations occurred. In the spring of that year, a band of Villa's men raided the town of Columbus, New Mexico, killing several citizens and committing robberies. A punitive expedition under the command of General Pershing was quickly sent out to capture the offenders. Against the protests of President Carranza, American forces penetrated deeply into Mexico without affecting the objective of the undertaking. This operation lasted until January 1917, when the imminence of war with Germany led to the withdrawal of the American soldiers. Friendly relations were resumed with the Mexican government, and the policy of watchful waiting was continued. End of section 6